Uh, we are continuing our journey through the book of Acts uh, this morning. We're looking at the first 17 verses of chapter 18. If you have a print Bible, I encourage you to open that to Acts chapter 18. The verses also be on the screen. We've all had the experience of having that friend in life that is just totally true blue, the one you can completely depend on, a real deal kind of friend. Friend for you who's there through the ups and downs when the rain starts to fall. And uh, this week, I was reminded of a friendship. Uh, I got to see my friend Gary from Ontario. And uh, Tuesday of this week, Gary and his wife Michelle and their three awesome kids. Uh, they have a boy, Tavish, who has special needs. And uh, just spending an afternoon, and they came to our house for dinner, and we had lots of fun that night. Uh, love that kid. Man, he grows on you. He's just this little bundle of joy. Yeah, very, very cool. Gary and I were roommates in college, and uh, I remember flying back to Ontario for his wedding. I was a groomsman, and uh, but we haven't seen each other face-to-face for 22 years. We've messaged and texted and all that kind of stuff, but haven't been together for 22 years. And uh, it was amazing. As, as things got going, we just were able to, to pick up almost kind of right where we left off. Very, very cool. Thank you, Jason. Yes. <laughs> so Tuesday I worked until 2 o'clock and then they came into town and was able to walk them down to Transfer Beach along the, over to the LMS docks and then we cruised up First Avenue. Got to get the picture at the 49th parallel uh, markers there. And, and it just the whole evening once they were saying goodbye and it was time to go, Lori and I just looked at each other and like, man, it's amazing. Hey, like you just haven't seen them for so long. And yet it just got right back to where you started out from. And when I was uh, preparing this week uh, in chapter 18 of Acts, it just struck me so strongly that the Apostle Paul had those kind of relationships in his life. In fact, even deeper and stronger because of what they had to go through uh, I've entitled the first point, An Episode of Friends. We're going to pick it up at the beginning of chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So we meet a bunch of Paul's friends here. First of all is Priscilla and Aquila. It's an amazing couple. They were Jewish in their ethnic origin. They had been in Rome. 
And then it says they came to Corinth. And the reason they had to come was they had to flee Rome. The emperor Claudius had said, got angry and kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And people were like, why? Why has this happened? And uh, we found out, uh, as people did historical research, there was a Roman historian, his name was Suetonius, and he actually recorded this moment in history. And this is the actual quote, well, it's in English, it was originally in Latin. As the Jews were indulging in constant riots at the instigation of Crestus, he banished them from Rome. Crestus is the Latin form of Christ. And so what scholars and historians have figured out is Christians had traveled to Rome, were settled there, and like Paul did, had gone to the Jewish synagogues and began to evangelize their Jewish neighbors. And just like Paul, some of them came to faith in Christ. They said, this is the Messiah we've been waiting for. And some got angry. And that was the base of these riots. And these riots kept happening throughout the city of Rome. And finally, Claudius, the emperor, said enough, and he kicked them all out. So that's why Priscilla and Aquila have come to Corinth, and uh, they get to meet up with Paul. And I think that kind of reference in extra-biblical sources like that is kind of interesting. You know, we believe the Bible's true because we, we read it, we believe it, we understand it. God does something in our lives and hearts. And we live it out and it proves to be true. That's the biggest reason we we believe the Bible to be true. But it's kind of cool when these extra biblical references outside the Bible confirm the actual text. Kind of neat. So, Priscilla and Aquila are these brand new Christians of Jewish origin. And Paul has so much in common with these people, including the trade that they all had in common, tent making. And uh, they didn't have nylon back in the first century, and so tents were made from goat skins. And uh, they kind of, as Candace and I researched it, apparently they, they were pretty industrious. They would, they would use the, the leather of the, of the goat hide to make tent, and they would take the goat, goat fur and, uh, and make it into blankets. And so uh, I think Paul and Priscilla and Aquila were in the tent-making industry, And so it was quite a process to get this leather ready and do all this kind of stuff so it didn't get brittle and hard. And there was was quite a thing to it. They would cut it into squares, sew them into whatever size tents people wanted. And uh, the Roman army used a lot of them. Uh, People in the marketplaces would use them. So there was quite a demand uh, for this trade. And so Paul supported himself doing this. But kind of the neat thing is he was working with this couple hours and hours every day. And then on the weekends, on Saturday at the Sabbath, he would go to the synagogue and he was reasoning with the Jews there. And I think for Priscilla and Aquila, this whole time, it was like discipleship course one, two, and three with the Apostle Paul. They just had so much time to talk. And he was talking about the gospel and the ways of God and instructing them. And we know that these people were good learners. Almost two years later, we find out just how much they had learned. It says in Acts 18, 24 to 28. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man and through the knowledge and a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, 
though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. There you go. Two years later, the very people Paul had discipled are now discipling someone else. Very, very cool. So these two are just two of the friendships God blesses Paul with. And then Silas and Timothy, the young guys he had trained and worked with, they finally come down from northern Greece, from Thessalonica where they were, and they made it all the way down to Corinth. And Paul would have been so happy to see these guys and, and so encouraged at the great job they did. They, they really solidified that church in, in Thessalonica. And we actually know how good a job they did because it mentions it in Paul's letter back to that church, 1 Thessalonians. It says this in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, and 6. For this reason, what I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid in some way that the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. You can almost hear Paul's sigh of relief. He's like, oh, good. That church plant is doing well. Because it was a lot of pain to get that church started. There was a riot in that city, all that kind of stuff. So Paul is extremely encouraged. But these guys didn't just bring good news. They actually brought a gift of money. And that was from the church in Philippi. Paul's very first church in the continent of Europe that he had planted. So what it says in Philippians 4, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. So very cool. This church in Philippi sends Paul this gift of money. Now, that has an immediate practical effect right there in Corinth. It says in 18.5, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. So all of a sudden that freed Paul up. He didn't have to be tent making Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. He could devote himself full time to the work. Pretty amazing. Now, as always seems to happen when Paul really got going, uh, the Jews got angry. And so these local synagogue gets all riled up and uh, they became abusive. Now, Paul does a really interesting thing here. He takes his clothes and he kind of shakes them out in this symbol. And we read that as Canadians 2,000 years ago. Like, what is the issue? Like, did the guy have ants in his clothes? What, what's, what's going on here? And apparently that's kind of like an ancient Jewish thing is it means 
I'm so disgusted with you and your behavior that I'm going to shake my clothes out because I don't even want any dust that was picked up in your synagogue to stay on my clothes. That's kind of the symbol. That's what it's going for there. So Jesus actually told his disciples this, Matthew 10, 14, when he, he sent his 12 disciples out on the very first missions trip. He says, if any, of you will, if any will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Same kind of symbol. You can see why the apostle... <laughs> I probably deserve that. But you can, you can see why Paul needed these amazing friendships in his life. It is downright tough to go from place to place and be beaten up, abused, thrown in jail, causing riots, run out of town, place after place after place. And God knew how amazing Paul was. He created him. He gave him the gifts and the abilities he had. But Paul was not superhuman. He needed these key friendships in order to stay faithful, in order to stay effective. And it's no different for us, is it? You and I need great friendships. A true, solid, good Christian friend that you can depend on is so worth seeking out. Now that the restrictions are easing and COVID numbers are plummeting, I would encourage you, come out of your cocoon and, uh, and start to experience that again. Uh, Neil Hugh would love to talk to you. Come be part of a CGS, Connect, Grow, Serve group. Uh, come and talk to Candice or myself if you're interested in being a mentor to someone or, or being mentored yourself. You know, each episode of that Friends TV show was titled The One Where, kind of fill in the blank. So there was The One Where Everybody Finds Out or The One With The Proposal or The One With The Videotape or The One With The Rumor. And I was thinking about this passage, and I think we could safely title it, because we have a lot of characters here. We have the Apostle Paul, we have Priscilla and Aquila, we have Silas and Timothy, and they've all come together in this city of Corinth. So we could entitle this episode, The One Where God Sent Friends. Now, the Apostle Paul needed them, and they needed him. And I was thinking about that in my life. And I was like, you know what? Sometimes it feels like some friendships, you need to do the initiating. You need to do the contact. You need to send the email or the text or give someone a call. But as the old saying goes, you want to have a friend, be a friend. It is so worth investing. All right, the verses we are about to read for our second point, the greatest friend of all. These verses contain some amazingly good news but we're not going to appreciate that if we don't kind of understand the context of Corinth. Now, Corinth was a very unusual city. And it was created and it kind of came to be because of actually the geography. There's kind of a big picture uh, view of Greece. Now we're going to zoom in a little bit. And you can see Corinth is on that tiny little skinny piece of land. They called it an isthmus. And uh, so that's where the city of Corinth is. And that little piece of land from side to side was six kilometers wide. And so ships would come along 
and they would come into Corinth. Now, they could sail all the way around, and there's a huge bunch of points you can see and and, uh, parts that stick out go all the way around. But for whatever reason, the way that the land is, it creates some of the most dangerous ocean in all of the Mediterranean. And there's huge storms, and there was constant shipwrecks. And so captains would vastly prefer to get their boat from one side over to the other in Corinth rather than sail around. And so that became why Corinth existed as a city. The Romans actually paved a six-kilometer-long track out of this hard limestone, and they put all the blocks in place. Apparently, it was amazingly smooth. It was like modern pavement. And uh, just like you have ways on a on a boat today where it goes into the water, the boat settles, and then the whole thing gets hauled out, they would do that with these giant carts. And they had some sort of big, huge wheels, and they would slide this under, and they would put all these huge ropes on these carts. And what that did is both protect the keel of the ship when it kind of landed on it, and then they would lift the ropes up and secure them on the deck so the thing was tight. And then using a combination of men and oxen, they would haul it across the six kilometers to the other side and put it in the ocean. And uh, yeah, how would you like that for your job every day? Like, going down to the docks, honey, going to haul some ships. Wow, they figured it'd take over 100 men to do that. Pretty amazing stuff. And someone at some point figured out, you know, it would be a lot lighter if we took the cargo off first. <laughs> And so what happened was they had these carts, the same kind of trial, but they would learn to take the cargo off first, get it going, and the captain and the sailors would walk with that, and the cargo would go ahead of the ship. And it took the ship three hours to get from side to side. And then some other brilliant person said, hey, since you got all that cargo here, you want to buy and sell a little? And so trade flourished. And the city of Corinth became extremely wealthy. So that's kind of the situation in Corinth. So you've got really wealthy people. Now, still today it's true, ports all around the world, sailors get lonely. And uh, they want a temporary girlfriend. Boy, that's a very nice way of saying it. (laughs) And this sort of became the other big thing in Corinth. In fact, even amongst the ancient world, the standard of sexual craziness in Corinth was at a whole new level. They even gave it its own word in Greek. Corinthiadzo means to act the Corinthian. And that became a buzzword over the entire Roman Empire. And it meant to practice fornication, sex outside of any marriage bounds or relationship. In fact, the term Corinthian girls equaled prostitute. So this was quite the deal. There was a temple there to the goddess Aphrodite, and it's reported in ancient writings that there was over a thousand female prostitutes and many male prostitutes. So now we understand Corinth is a crazy place. There's the ruins, actually, of that temple of Aphrodite today. Now, I tell you all of that, Because when we read these verses, it is incredibly amazing that the Holy Spirit of God was able to take people entrapped in these kind of lifestyles and form a church out of it. 
All right, we're going to pick it up. Chapter 18, verses 7 and 8. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. We read that and we go, yeah, big deal. People came to Jesus. No, this was massive. This was huge. It took so much for these people to be kind of pulled out of the lifestyles and habits and ways that they had been living in. Amazing. You know, obviously our Western culture continues to return back to that kind of over-sexualized environment. Now, we're not as bad as ancient Corinth, but every year it seems like we take a jump towards it. And it's really important and really encouraging for us to remember that even when people are trapped in all kinds of materialism and wealth and and an over-sexualized lifestyle, There are no boundaries to the Holy Spirit of God. He can reach anybody, anytime, anywhere. And this passage is proof of that. And God did it in ancient Corinth. He can do it today. Well, this church in Corinth is being established. People are steadily coming to faith and joining. And the whole thing must have been incredibly joyful for the Apostle Paul, but also incredibly exhausting. He's faithfully preaching and teaching every day now. And at first, his opposition comes from these Jews in the synagogue. And then he's got all these people that come to faith, and they have to be discipled. And they come from all these different various backgrounds. And all that helps make sense. If you ever read the book of 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians, you think, what a mess. This church is crazy. What was going on? Well, the reason the church is crazy is because of this environment it was in. And the people needed a long process to leave their old ways, habits, and temptations behind. Now, into all of that, Paul gets a vision of Jesus Christ himself. You know, Jesus knew everything Paul and his companions were going through. He knew what they were facing. And Jesus knew this was the crucial moment. If encouragement doesn't come to Paul while he's in Corinth, probably he gives up out of discouragement. And this is the amazing moment when it happens, verses 9 through 11. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So, Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the Word of God. That was exactly what Paul needed, these five amazing pieces of encouragement. First thing, God, Jesus tells him, do not be afraid. You know, Paul actually had pretty good reason to be afraid. As we've seen in this series in Acts, Paul was uh, beaten with rods. He was imprisoned in Philippi. He went through an earthquake that God used to rescue them. In Thessalonica, he was, he was in the middle of a riot. In Berea, they had to smuggle him out at night to get him out of the city. And in Athens, it wasn't in physical danger, but he had to go toe-to-toe with the kind of intellectual elite in the city of Athens, all these philosophers. 
And he had to make the gospel understandable and relevant and credible. Paul had good reason to be afraid. He had good reason to want to give up. But Jesus himself tells him directly, do not be afraid. And when you do a quick survey of the Bible, you see this is a constant theme. Way back in Abraham's day, before God had changed his name to Abraham, he gave this amazing word to Abram. He said, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Fast forward to Jacob. And God comes to him this moment when he's about to take his sons and daughters and their household and all 75 people into Egypt. God says this, I am God, the God of your father. He said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. Fast forward again, the people of Israel have come out of 400 years later, out of Egypt, they're now 2 million people. They come to the promised land and they have battles to fight. This is what God says to Joshua. Then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you. Go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his whole land. You get the idea. What Jesus says to Paul in that moment, do not be afraid, stands in a long line. That whole biblical theme of do not be afraid. Now here's the amazing part. Jesus doesn't just say it to Paul. God didn't just say it to Abraham, Jacob, and Joshua. It is for us too. Do not be afraid. And I think we need to hear this more than ever. Do not be afraid with world politics, with war in Ukraine. Be concerned, but don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of our secular culture, feeling like maybe, maybe we can't even share our faith with our neighbors or friends or publicly anymore. Do not be afraid to trust God with your finances, your future, all those steps in your life. Do not be afraid. That word was for Paul, but it is also for us. Then Jesus tells him, keep on speaking. Do not be silent. You know, it probably seemed to Paul every time he opened his mouth that another riot was starting or some crazy thing was going to happen. It gets wearisome. He really needed to hear that specific command. And then Jesus says, I am with you. Again, this is such a theme in the Bible. The presence of God with us. Psalm 23, probably the most famous psalm in all the Bible. Verse 4, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then Jesus says that exact promise to every single person who follows him. Matthew 28, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Then Jesus specifically tells Paul, no one is going to attack and harm you. That must have been good news. He <laughs> like, oh, thank you for that. That's reassuring. And then finally, this last piece of encouragement, the fifth one, I have many people in this city. That means people who hadn't yet come to faith, 
But God knows who is going to choose him. God knows who's going to come to faith. And Paul must have looked at this crazy city, ships going by, sailors everywhere, this crazy temple with a thousand prostitutes up there. And he would be like, really, Lord? Like, you have a lot of people in this city who are going to come to faith. Wow. Okay. I'm in. And the grand summation of it all is Paul stays for a year and a half in that city. We've, we've been seeing this in Acts. Paul stays very short amounts of time in each place, each city, just enough to get the church planted. But it's different in Corinth. He spends a year and a half. And when I thought about it, I thought, you know what? At the right crucial moment in Paul's life, Jesus did something amazing. Number one, he sent the friends. Priscilla, Aquila, Silas, Timothy. He sent those friends around Paul so that he was part of a team. He wasn't by himself. And then he reminds them, actually, I am your greatest friend. I'm the friend who will never leave you, never forsake you, never give up on you. And Jesus makes that promise to us. Pretty amazing stuff. All right, our final point, angry Jews and indifferent Romans. All right, verses 12 through 17. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it'd be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, Settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. Crazy. Well, again, this happens at a pretty crucial time. Jesus has promised all these things to Paul. He's promised him he won't be harmed or, or killed. And then sure enough, he finds himself dragged before the Roman government. Everyone's angry. He's like, oh brother, another riot. Now we remember that Crispus, the guy who was the original synagogue leader, had actually come to faith. He, he trusted Jesus as the Messiah. And so they had to elect a new guy. And so they elected this guy, Sosthenes. And Sosthenes thought it would be a good idea to rile everybody up and try to start this thing and drag Paul over to the, the Roman governor. Except his plan kind of backfires. He, the Roman governor doesn't want anything to do, do with it. And on one side, it's good that Gallio doesn't want to interfere. But since it involves questions about your Words and names and your own loss, settle the matter yourselves. He doesn't want anything to do with it. So that's kind of the good side. The bad side is that he's totally not going to interfere even when a Jewish person is being beaten. And the crowds there turned on Sosthenes and began to beat him in front of the proconsul. Gallio showed no concern. So this poor guy, he had a good plan, but it backfired on him. And I'm sure Paul and those first Christians in Corinth took no joy 
in the beating that Sosthenes received, and neither should we. Obviously, anti-Semitism, anti-Jewishness has been a sad fact of history over the past 2,000 years. And although this instance was a little bit self-inflicted, we still obviously take no pleasure in suffering of another human being made in the image of God. Now, the text tells us that Paul stayed in that city a long time, a year and a half. And that was a long time for Paul, but he knew that if this church is going to grow and thrive and, and continue on, it needs a really strong foundation. Leaders need to be trained. Uh, this church needs so much discipling. And when I look at this whole passage, I hope it does for you what it did for me this week, that I'm kind of inspired by Paul and his closest friends, Priscilla, Aquila, Silas, Timothy, in the most challenging and difficult circumstances, he, Jesus sent Paul friends, and he was the friend that Paul needed. And I want to say to all of us as a church, in closing, everyone watching online this morning, Jesus wants the same for us. He wants to give us good, solid, supportive friends and a deeper friendship with himself. And the key is, being open to it, being willing to have those friendships and being willing to invest in them. And there's part of us always that goes, yeah, but, but if I'm vulnerable with somebody else, there's risk in that. I, I'm not sure I want to take that risk. And I want to close with these amazing words by C.S. Lewis about friendship. He says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. The Apostle Paul took a risk on friendships, and we should too. Amen?